what's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook, and this episode is dropping on May 29th, 2021. This episode was originally recorded in December of 2019 as part of From the Head of the Bed, a podcast from the anesthesia community. I'm re-releasing it here to tag on to the interview I just put out on retirement with Eric Carlson, and here's why. There's an incredible amount of focus on young people and those who are just getting started in anesthesia. With the evolution of Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and other social media platforms, there's been a fundamental shift in our culture where more and more content creators than ever are showing the way on how to become a CRNA. There's no shortage of accounts showing the lifestyle of being a critical care nurse, making the transition to grad school, being an SRNA, an anesthesia resident, and taking that journey to CRNA. It's amazing. People are doing all kinds of stuff out there. There's also a growing number of CRNAs who are offering professional coaching services in paid membership sites to help critical care nurses on their applications for grad school and journey as SRNAs. Not to mention the AANA has also completely revamped their website and built out a ton of resources for RNs who want to become CRNAs. All of this is new since I went to grad school. None of this was around back then. It's truly a revolution in accessibility of information for understanding what becoming a CRNA is all about and how to get there. It used to be said that CRNAs are the best kept secret in healthcare. Most people, even in healthcare, don't know what we do or how to become a CRNA. In many cases, that's actually still true. But the word is getting out and more and more people are showing the path and offering coaching on how to become a CRNA. But not many are focused on the middle of your career or the end of your career. How do you stay sharp? How do you plan for retirement? How do you navigate the long strides of actually being a CRNA and making moves with your career? That's what this episode is about. And the last one on retirement with Eric Carlson. There's so much more to talk about and to cover on these topics that I'll get around to in the Anesthesia Guidebook at some point. But I hope for now you enjoy this show. And if you're a critical care nurse, if you're an SRNA or a new CRNA of just getting going in this profession, this show is still for you. Look down the road a bit. Look at where you want to go. Think about your mid-career and late career phase and make some plans for where you want to end up because you rarely hit what you don't aim for. Oh, and one more thing. On that best kept secret, how amazing is my job thing, I've recently had two surgeons tell me on their own accord and independently of one another that they think being a CRNA is probably the best job in healthcare, that they see a lot of different roles and obviously intimately understand their own jobs. And with all that perspective, they think being a CRNA is the ticket. It's the right amount of training, autonomy, responsibility, and work-life balance. I was pretty stoked to hear that, and I couldn't agree more. And with that, let's get to the show. In this episode, Dr. Cynthia Farina and I talk about what it means to be in the mid to late phase of your career as a CRNA. Dr. Farina is a CRNA from Michigan who currently serves as the chair of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetist Health and Wellness Committee and the Michigan Association of Nurse Anesthetist Wellness Committee. Dr. Farina completed her Bachelor of Science in Nursing at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and then her Master of Science in Nursing in the Anesthesia Tract from Oakland University in 1996. She then returned to the University of Michigan to complete her Doctorate of Nursing Practice. Cindy currently practices full-time in a large suburban teaching hospital, where she also serves as a clinical and didactic instructor in the Oakland University Beaumont Graduate Program of Nurse Anesthesia. 
Cindy has a strong interest in creating and sharing educational material on personal and workplace wellness for CRNAs and SRNAs. In her most recent work, she has explored the topic of career phases and transitions for nurse anesthetists. I'm pumped that Cindy came to me with the idea for putting this topic into a podcast. This topic has relevance for every CRNA and anesthesia provider. You're either in the later phases of your career or you're heading this direction and currently work alongside CRNAs who are in the latter half of their careers. I think it's fascinating to think about how we transition out of school after such an intensive period of study and training and into our careers as practicing anesthesia providers. How do we find and keep our stride through the changing seasons of our professional and personal lives? Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you may want to go back and check out the episode I did on expertise in anesthesia with Denim Ward. Hey folks, jumping in with an edit here. So the podcast with Cindy Farina that you're listening to now was originally released in December of 2019. The episode with Denim Ward was released back in February of 2017 on From the Head of the Bed, but now it will follow this episode and will be episode number 31 on Anesthesia Guidebook. It's so good. So get through this podcast and then check out the next one. Okay, now back to me. We talk about Anders Ericsson, a psychologist who spent his career studying the development of expertise and whose work was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell's discussion of the 10,000-hour rule, the idea that it takes about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to gain experience in a particular domain. While this podcast isn't that podcast, it's not specifically about expertise in anesthesia, I wanted to share something with you that Erickson once said. He said, most professionals reach a stable average level of performance within a relatively short time frame and maintain this mediocre status for the rest of their careers. I think that's a compelling statement. It makes me think about finding ways to stay sharp and to continue to learn well after passing boards when you're in the middle of your career. It's what drives me to be like Gail, who is a CRNA in her 60s that I'll tell you about in this podcast. She told me that she wants to be as sharp on her last day in the OR, her last day before she retires, as she ever was throughout her career. We should all take Erickson's message to heart and aspire to be like Gail right through the mid to late phase of our careers. So I hope you enjoy the conversation with Dr. Farina. Think about what you want your career and life to look like as you listen to this. And let me know, as always, what you think about the show and what you want to hear about next. Dr. Farina provided her contact information for anyone who would like to follow up with her about this podcast, and I'll put that info in the show notes on the website. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Cindy Farina, I'm so excited to chat with you on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for coming on to talk about the mid and late career phase for CRNAs. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity, and I'm glad to share this information with the CRNAs here who may be listening. Yeah, that's great. So I want to uh, hear a little bit more about your background with the AANA. So you're the chair of the AANA Health and Wellness Committee uh, what got That's you interested right. in focusing on promoting wellness for CRNAs and SRNAs? Well, that started at the state level. Um, I just kind of think it was a personal evolution that we need to address our own health and well-being. Um, I actually started exercising regularly rather late in life. Uh, probably in my late 40s, I became a runner and just decided that, you know, every time I got outside and moved around, I 
just felt so much better. It was like doing a 180 degree attitude adjustment. And um, I joined the Michigan Association of Nurse Anesthetists Wellness Committee, uh, probably about 2013 or so. And our state wellness committee was formed in response to a student death from a propofol overdose. Oh, and wow. A past, yeah, a past president of Manoff said, we need a wellness committee. And um, just along with years of personal experience with challenges in CRNA practice and following the committee's publications in our state news bulletin, I identified some gaps in our wellness resources. So besides substance use disorder, I thought there were a lot of emotional and physical challenges in our practice. Major ones included stress management, sleep deprivation and fatigue, incivility, and the second victim phenomenon. So I joined the MANA Wellness Committee with the intention of shedding some light on these topics. Um, I don't think I was alone in experiencing these things. Yeah. You know, our profession is wonderful, but inherently difficult. And we need to manage additional threats to our emotional and physical well-being in order to perform well and provide safe patient care. And I also think that we deserve to be well for our own sake and that, you know, we can manage avoidable miseries that don't really need to be part of our working life. So I served my first term on the ANA Health and Wellness Committee during the 2019 fiscal year. And during that year, our charge was to gather resources for our members about career transitions in our practice, beginning with the transition from student to CRNA, then for early, middle, and late career CRNAs, particularly since there wasn't much out there for the latter two. I'm very glad that you are wanting to focus on mid to late career CRNAs. I agree with you. I don't think there's a lot of information out there. I'm stoked that you've kind of mm-hmm. turned the spotlight on that phase of the career. I want to go back to something you just said. Uh-huh. The student death that happened that spurred your state, Michigan, into getting a wellness committee pulled together, was that mm-hmm. an intentional suicide or an accidental overdose? I believe it was an accidental overdose. That's very interesting. I, and I think something else that you mentioned was that you know so often we equate, I think in the anesthesia community, wellness with addressing only substance use disorder, Mm -hmm, addiction, mm -hmm. diversion, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, But it's so much more than that. It is. But, you know, it gets attention because it's so catastrophic. Everything else is more insidious, kind of goes under the radar. It's hard to ignore when people are dying. So naturally, that's an attention getter. Right. So tell me a little bit more about the Health and Wellness Committee and some of the work that you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. You said last year you were focusing on resources for Mm -hmm. uh, SRNAs and new graduates. Is that right? And now you're trying to shift the attention a little bit? Well, we have a different charge for this year. We are looking at burnout and suicide. But I'd kind of like to focus on uh, last year's work where we created a site on the ANA homepage, well, there's links to it, but called ANA Thrive. So we actually created a second section with resources so that it would be easy to direct members there. And what does the Thrive website focus on? It's the career transitions. So like I said, resources for the beginning of a career, middle and late. Uh, We've got a ton of resources and your own health and wellness article is there from 2017. Oh, that's very exciting. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, SRNA tips for transitioning into practice. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I very much enjoyed writing that. That was good. Uh, Yeah, that was well done. So I enjoyed reading it. Oh, well, thank you so much. 
Uh-huh. Well, I'm very excited to mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, ve- I'm very excited uh-huh. to chat with you today about this middle late career phase for CRNAs. Uh-huh. So you recently gave a talk at the Michigan Association for Nurse Anesthetists Fall Conference. I thought your analogy for this topic was really clever. The title of your presentation was First and mm-hmm. Goal: A Playbook uh-huh. for the Late Phase of Your Career, and you kind of talked about the metaphor of a football mm-hmm. game as our career. So how'd the talk at the conference go? You know, John, it was interesting because it was the least rehearsed presentation that I ever gave. When I was at the conference, I was still putting it together. It was original. And uh, it's like I got up there practically cold. And it was the most attentive audience ever. Um, I'd say for the second to last program on a Sunday morning, Uh, We had a lot of people in attendance, and almost all of them were mid to late career professionals. I just said, uh, you know, raise your hand if you're in the middle, raise your hand late. And I did not see anybody nodding off. They were very attentive, and I had people come up to me after and say things like, thank you for bringing that up. Oh, that's awesome. You know, et cetera. And a couple people have, you know, thrown out a few things about what's happened to them. And uh, just as a background, if I would ever bring this subject up informally, like, oh, yeah, uh, there's something to that. So I think it uh, bears a little more exploration. Yeah, it gains some traction, it sounds like, for sure. Um, I think that no matter where you are in your career, a presentation like this is for everybody. Just to know what might be coming or how to gain perspective of you know, what your coworkers are all about. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think there, I don't know the statistics, but I think there's a, perhaps the majority of the listeners to this podcast are new CRNAs or even SRNAs mm-hmm. or folks that are thinking about going to anesthesia school. And mm-hmm. I hope that they tune into this because this is, like you said, these are the people that you're going to be working with uh, mm-hmm. when you get out of school and you're a, you're a young CRNA and we're all uh-huh. headed in this direction uh including myself. So I'm very excited to chat with Mm -hmm. you about it. Um, So let's hit the highlights of the career stages. So you use Mm -hmm. this football metaphor and you kind of start Uh off as, you know, the beginning of your career is like the kickoff. So what's going on at that stage of the game? Well, you know, my perception and my recollection of that career phase is that we're very excited. We have very high hopes and uh, everything's, you're on a high. You're so glad that you finally made it through this program. You achieved a major career goal and a dream. So it's like the game is just starting. You take in the field, you're pumped, but you have a long way to go. Okay. At the beginning of practice, you're fresh, and this is the most book smart that you're ever going to be. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on. You may have loans to pay off, may be in a new personal relationship, with a young family, maybe no family, or maybe your family's not so young because not everybody that is in school is in their 20s or early yeah, that's 30s. Right. Uh, you know, school's done and it's time to start living. And this is when you're riding high. You just got started. And how can you possibly be thinking about the end of your career? Is that on anybody's radar? And I think we may spend our younger years thinking that old age is something that happens to somebody else, not us. And we don't have time to think about that right now. You know, we're golden. We're happy. And essentially, going back to the football analogy, your job is to keep moving the ball down the field. And as long as you keep doing that, you're going to have plenty more chances. So that's how I thought of the beginning of our career. Yeah. And just, and just for folks to put it in context for your story, how long have you been a CRNA? Oh, 23 years. It'll be 24 years in uh, April. 
Wow. So 24 years in. How long were you a nurse before that? Uh, let's see. Well, let's see. 36 years total in nursing. Oh, wow. I worked, I worked 10 years and then you got that 28 months. Yeah, 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 so. yeah. Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay, so gap. Mm-hmm. so this is this. The topic is definitely um, contextualized for yourself in mm-hmm. in a huge way. So, in your talk that you shared with me, you talked about the messy middle. So you've moved mm-hmm. the ball down the field a little bit. You're into the middle phase of your career. What's going on at that point? Okay, well, to put it in perspective, when I was working with the ANA Health and Wellness Committee, we identified the mid-career phase at about five to 20 years in practice. Going back to the football analogy, it's like being halfway through a football game or being midfield in a drive down the field. <laughs> you're comfortable, you're halfway there, there's still a long way to go and we're slugging it out. And this is when we may ask ourselves, are things going well or not? Which way are things going to go? We may be getting antsy, lose our focus, but it's way too early to quit or it's not time to exit our careers. So we may be the most confident in our skills and very comfortable. We could be moving into leadership or education. Personally, we could feel very spread thin between work and home life and realize that we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. Downside is we could feel stuck in a rut. And also may feel that this is time to reevaluate our personal goals. It's a time to change up our game, okay? Adapt a new strategy, run some different plays, so to speak. And the messy middle, I found, was a very nifty term that I got from associationsuccess.org. And this talks about the struggles of mid-career professionals. They may find that a lot of resources are directed mostly toward early careerists or those people who are approaching retirement. A lot of the educational content and opportunities are not for them. Mid-careerists may find that they're too seasoned for early careerist educational content or opportunities, and they can feel like they're forgotten, kind of like the middle child sort of thing. Um, So I think there's something to that. And I just love that term, the messy middle. You mentioned earlier that at the beginning of your career, you're the most book smart that you're ever going to be. Maybe speak a little bit to that of like that transition. I don't want to say away from book knowledge, but some of it does fade over time, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you're gaining all of this experiential knowledge. So how does that Mm -hmm. work in our careers? Well, you know, it's, it's, there are a lot of balls to keep up in the air. Okay. Look at what we learn in anesthesia school and all that educational content. It's not easy to hold on to that. And depending on your work environment, you may kind of drift off into certain specialty areas, get comfortable there, and the rest may go by the wayside. I think you have to expend a lot of effort into keeping current. And whether or not we want to do that, you know, that becomes a personal decision. That's where I think we can tread into a little bit of a dangerous area that if we don't take ongoing education seriously, we're going to lose this knowledge. Uh, and there are certain challenges because it can be very costly or difficult to get away for conferences. Life takes over when you're going to work and managing your personal life. Where's the time to do that? Yeah, right. So that's what I think may occur in the mid-career phase, You know, especially the farther we get out. It just takes a lot of commitment to keep that knowledge going. You know, we're very effective and safe providers, no doubt about that. But I see that as a mid-career challenge. That's interesting. What are tips that you would give CRNAs who are in that phase to stay Mm -hmm. sharp? I mean, I know that 
you know, there's the context that we could go ahead and uh, acknowledge that we've got this CPC program or continued professional yeah. competency mm-hmm. program from NBCRNA, mm-hmm. which I think is, is trying, it's relatively new, right? The new phase of it. And it's, it's trying mm-hmm. to kind of assure or build out some sort of structured format so that CRNAs are mm-hmm. staying current and that the NBCRNA can demonstrate that, you know, all the way through mm-hmm. the, the core modules and the CPC assessment. So there's mm-hmm. that context, but what other tips uh, would you give for CRNAs who are in that phase of their career that are mm-hmm. looking to stay sharp, but maybe are struggling with, with all of the other tensions and pulls that they have in their life? You know, I think a great thing is to work with students. I found that that was very helpful in keeping current and also just volunteer to teach some classes. Uh, we have that opportunity available to us where I work. You know, I took a couple of topics and made them my own. And when you teach a class, you learn. By teaching, you learn. Yeah. It keeps going. You can also get new ideas from students, see how things are changing. I think that's a great way to keep your own skills current. And, um, you know, I made it a point to put myself out there and seek opportunities. Whatever's going on in clinical, you know, volunteer for it, go for it. We're responsible for managing our careers, I think. And you need to pay attention and create opportunities for yourself. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I would I would completely agree with that, that the more you challenge yourself to get out of your comfort mm-hmm. zone, the more opportunities come your way and the fresher you're going to stay with things and the more mm-hmm. you know prepared and ready you'll be when something goes wrong in the OR environment. And, you know, if you've continued to kind of uh-huh. train and be ready for those moments. And, uh, you know, when we were students, we were told, look it up, look it up. Don't know the answer. Look it up. Well, that doesn't end when you graduate. That's and there's a reason yeah. they do that because you have to do this your whole career. You know, I pulled out my phone and Googled something. Yeah, of course. That I either forgot or don't know anything about. And that's something at our fingertips with our cell phones that you can get immediate information. Right, right. Um, And I think we need to carry on the confidence that, you know, we're smart, resourceful people and we can figure things out. You know, avoid the knee-jerk response to freak out. It's like, oh my God, I don't know what that is kind of thing. You can do it. Yeah, of course. Our our hospital um, has a paid access to up to date, which is obviously the popular you know, website for medical knowledge. And one of the interesting features on UpToDate is that they have a section that's titled What's New? And it goes categorically Mm -hmm. across different sectors of medicine and healthcare. There's one, of course, for anesthesiology, but I find that um, critical care medicine and emergency medicine, those topics are always somewhat relevant to anesthesia. And it gives you Mm -hmm. a really quick bullet point rundown of new research, emerging trends, things that would change your practice and that kind of stuff. So uh, mm-hmm. times when work is slow or, you know, if you're at the hospital and you've got downtime, then uh, I have found that to be a good resource just to be able to click in and see, hey, has there been anything that's mm-hmm. come out in the last six months? There you go. What would you say to, I, I work as the, the SRNA clinical coordinator at our hospital. So mm-hmm. managing the clinical assignments for the SRNAs. And what, what would you say to mid to late career CRNAs who are nervous mm-hmm. about working with SRNAs that maybe feel like they're not sharp on the book knowledge, so they're a little Uh intimidated to have to field questions from SRNAs. (laughs) Ooh, okay. Well, you know what I would do is um, if I have been in that situation, I'll say, you know what? I'm not sure. Let's look it up. Yeah. That's what I do. Just to be honest about it. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, be honest about it. And it's okay. I mean, we're safe. We're excellent. We're there to teach and lead somebody. It's not that we don't know what we're doing, but I think some element of humility is okay. Yeah. And just you're setting an example where if you don't know something, you know how to find out. Right. And that this is something you'll face through your career. Yeah. We have to look things up. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's Mm -hmm. a great answer. So in your talk, you spent some time talking about the midlife crisis. So tell us Uh about that. That's not just about your career, but many adults Mm -hmm. go through some form of a midlife crisis. So tell me a little bit about that. I like that question. The word midlife crisis, I think, sparks panic. (laughs) It sounds so scary, but it really implies a turning point in life. And I said, there's no army or F5 tornado coming down the street. Okay, it's <laughs> it's just a turning point. Um, and to put it in perspective, all CRNAs and SRNAs have made it through one major life transition, and that's called adolescence. Okay, it's an example of a turning point and a transition from childhood to young adulthood. Um, midlife is when you realize that you are no longer young and you are beginning beginning to get old. It's a time of reevaluation of priorities let's just say you're evaluating what your goals were and where you are. That may cause some discomfort with people. Like I said, it's a process of reevaluation and possible reinvention. Yeah. Is it, is it always a crisis? What, why is it, you know, why is it called a crisis? <laughs> Cause that does sound very scary. <laughs> well, you know, I used my, I used an article, a 2007 article published by the American Association of Occupational Health Nurses by a woman named Diane Leggett. And she offered this definition of a midlife crisis and was very clear about saying that it is a turning point. And it may be the actual definition is turning point versus a calamity. And I know it sounds very scary. I think that in the media and probably in, uh, you know, movies and popular art, they show somebody's life falling apart. I don't think it's necessarily like that. It you doesn't, know, it doesn't have to be a crisis. It does not have to be. And I'll call it a calamity. Okay. A calamity. <laughs> yeah. And I like how you put it in terms of you equated it to uh, the phase of adolescence, that it's something right. that is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. So everyone's going to uh-huh. head through that turning point mm-hmm. when you realize you're mm-hmm. not a young professional anymore. You're not a young adult anymore, mm-hmm. but you're turning towards mm-hmm. hopefully the long uh-huh. latter years of your life. You know, that was one of the reasons I wanted to put together a presentation like this, because people don't talk about it. I think we mull it over, (laughs) Um, and it can be a little scary, okay, just to think that things aren't going to stay the same all the time. There is an end to this. Uh, Some self-doubts might be creeping in. You know, I just, like I said, try to probe into this, come up with some information, and, uh, you know, frame it in a positive way and offer some suggestions for how to deal with it. Yeah, I think that's great. Again, I love that we're chatting about this. It's funny. I'm definitely in the the earlier years of mm-hmm. my career and when I look around, I think I don't know what the what the timeline is on who a millennial is or not, but I th- I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure I'm in that group. You don't see many millennials talk about you know, anticipating a midlife crisis or mm-hmm. anticipating much of anything uh, in the future. You know, no one's out mm-hmm. there Instagramming about their midlife crisis or <laughs> whatever. It's uh, usually all of the the early stage things, uh, having kids, going on trips, uh, that kind of stuff. So, 
I think it is, it is uh-huh. healthy. And hopefully again, for the younger listeners that are out there, hopefully this podcast will give them some context and some things to think about as they move forward in their career. Yeah, and you know, some things are just relevant to the life stage you're in. Yeah. Traveling with kids, managing children, et cetera. That's uh, a developmental stage, so to speak, uh, a milestone in life. Yeah, yeah. So you talk about the late phase of a career, mm-hmm. again, going back to the football analogy, as being mm-hmm. kind of on first in 10. How do you go from that middle stage of your career when you when you are at that turning point midway through uh-huh. and you're starting to move towards first and 10? Well, I think that first of all, you kind of realize you're almost done. You can see not only the light at the end of the tunnel, you start to see the end of the tunnel. You know, this is not an easy profession, not emotionally, not physically. And you may experience like, you know, this is getting harder and harder. We're getting a little more tired. Maybe we realize, you know, things are starting to change. We have a lot of vim and vigor left, but things are just not what they used to be. I made a reference in one of my slides that repeated tackles start to wear on you. Just think about (laughs) think about colliding, you know, tossing you around, falling to the ground. That just wears on you over time. Um, to jump in, I think that's one of the yeah. one of the very interesting things you mentioned. This next year, the Health and Wellness Committee is focusing on mm-hmm. burnout. It's certainly a buzzword right now, uh-huh. but um, yeah, it is. I think mm-hmm. one of the very interesting concepts in burnout. Um, many healthcare providers will be familiar with the radiation dosimeters that people yeah. work around. You know, CT and X rays and that kind of stuff. Where there's a little. Mm-hmm badge on their, usually their lead gown, kind of uh-huh. you know, cumulatively measures the exposure to radiation and they test those things, I don't know, so many mm-hmm. weeks or months or whatever, and then tell you if you need to take a step back. And it, yeah. someone phrased that at one point in terms of wellness and burnout, that it's the cumulative tackles or the cumulative stress. It may not be one dramatic crisis or patient experience in the OR that burns you out, but it's the cumulative stress that you are exposed to over a career that can lead to burnout and issues around that. Yeah, but you know, the interesting thing, John, um, about burnout and what I've read, that it's actually early careerists who are more prone to burnout. That's very interesting. And I don't want to get too far down that path, but just to make a quick comment is the reason why is there may be a clash of expectations versus reality. We have resilience on the other side and late career professionals may be seen as the survivors. Okay, we have found a way to cope, adapt, and move along. So I just wanted to kind of make that point there with burnout and relate that to late career people. But I think we need to find a way to keep going when we are emotionally and physically challenged by things. Um, I could say I'm fortunate in being in a workplace that allows a lot of control and flexibility. I think over the long haul, no matter where you are in your career, having control and some flexibility over your job is a key element of job satisfaction. It's like if you were in first and 10, you know you're so close and you hope you can hang on. You hope nothing bad happens. Okay, in football, we have a fumble. We have an interception. (laughs) You know, we don't make it to the fourth down sort of thing. And I think mentally, in my head anyway, those are things that I have going through my mind. It's like, oh my God, I'm almost there. You know, I, I hope everything will be okay. Yeah. Can you make it through? Cross, I know. Cross the end to the end zone. I know. I mean, recently, you know, one of the mm-hmm. big stressors for late career CRNAs was the CPC program. And, oh. you know, prior mm-hmm. to February of 2019, 
there was an element of the CPC that had the exam that was a, you know, every eight year exam. And many people were uh-huh. looking down the road to that, to where the first time that that would actually count. And at the time oh, it was uh-huh. a, you know, pass fail. And if folks failed uh-huh. the exam, then your credential would be at risk. And so many, many late career uh-huh. CRNAs were wondering, am I going yeah. to make it? Am I going to make it to right, my retirement right. age? It was uh-huh. profoundly stressful for folks. Yeah, I've, you know, heard and read a lot of things like that. So, And for folks who are listening, just so that they know mm-hmm. that obviously the NBCRNA did change that. And now it's not a mm-hmm. pass-fail and it's it's a learning tool part of the CPC. Mm-hmm. So that, that yeah. certainly changed um, the outlook at of first and 10 for many late mm-hmm. career CRNAs. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned in your talk, this concept of ageism. Tell us about ageism. What is that? Okay. So this was actually a term that was coined by a psychologist. Uh, I think he's a psychologist. His name is Butler in 1969. It's defined as prejudice by one age group against another age group. Manifests as discrimination just based on age. There are negative stereotypes and perceptions of older adults that go along with it. Interestingly, age discrimination also happens on the other end of the spectrum against younger individuals. But for the purpose of today's discussion, we're going to focus on the older adults. Ageism is institutionalized in the United States. It's even unrecognized. We don't even realize how our thoughts and biases come into play. It's also the least researched form of discrimination. Interestingly, when I did a lit search that underpinned my presentation, a lot of the research has been done in European countries, and a lot comes out of Australia and New Zealand, telling you kind of two things, that it's understudied in the U.S., but it's also a universal problem. Uh, I did not find a whole lot in the nursing profession, and I guess I would dare to say I don't think I came across anything in our own profession. Yeah. Um, so it just kind of tells us that it might be something we want would want to look at a little closely, Um, It has been described as a social disease and the last form of acceptable discrimination. Uh, We haven't made a lot of progress against that where we have addressed sexism, racism, homophobia, and other forms of prejudice. I found a 2017 guest editorial in the International Psychogeriatrics Journal where researchers found that 98.8% of Facebook group descriptors of older adults reflected negative stereotypes. And no matter how scathing the Facebook posts were, these descriptors did not violate Facebook's policy on hate speech. Wow. Wow. That's very (laughs) interesting. Yeah. It forbids singling out people based on their race, ethnic group, religion, gender, sexuality, disease, or disability. But there were no such prohibitions with respect to age. Wow. Um, Now, if you ever go to the store and try to buy a birthday card for somebody over 40, you don't find a whole lot that's positive. There's black balloons, okay, (laughs) black party favors. But, you know, I can tell you, since we're in the same profession, we see a lot of people who don't make it to their 40th or 50th birthdays. And I think that's something to be sad about, not your birthday. So I kind of like, I frown upon the negative messages for birthday cards. Um, yeah. What also came across my radar, I don't know what goes on where you live, but young children are asked to dress as old people on the 100th day of school. Oh, interesting. No, I, I, really? don't, I don't have kids. Yeah, I don't have kids, so I'm not, I'm not aware of that. You know, and I just don't see that as the positive. And I think we're putting a message in kids' head from a very early age. 
on what older people are supposed to look like or act like. And look at how we talk to elderly people. Right. I vividly recall an undergraduate nursing school professor who gave a lecture on how we treat the elderly, referring to them as cute and referring to them as honey or sweetie, and they talk to them like they're children. You know, and what's behind our negative attitudes towards aging? I came across something interesting in the literature that it comes out of our own fear of decline and death. This is something that will most likely happen to all of us and is referred to as our common fate. And ageist behaviors distance us from elderly people, and that's a way of buffering our fears related to decline, old age, and our own mortality. So if it gives us, you know, like reflect on that among ourselves, we could probably see that that's true. So that's my bit on ageism. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. all very fascinating. I think mm-hmm. it is unfortunate when you see the the language in particular, I, mm-hmm. I feel like at the hospital when you hear young healthcare providers refer to older people, you know, as honey or sweetie, or they're so cute, or, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's kind of a paternalistic uh, approach uh-huh. to language. Um, mm-hmm. It's not necessarily empowering or that respectful. And I don't know many people, they mm-hmm. probably don't, they don't mean to come no. across as rude mm-hmm. or inconsiderate, mm-hmm. but, um, but there is a little bit of an implicit bias in their language, I think. Right. Just because you look different on the outside, you know, may not mean that you are different on the inside. And uh, I did like a brief uh, look into what they call elder speak and how we talk to elderly people. Uh And I came across something that said individuals with dementia become more agitated when they're infantilized or talked to, you know, in childlike terms. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it just kind of strikes something on an emotional level. Right. That's very interesting. How do you think older CRNAs are treated in the workplace? Actually, I think this is something we need to talk more about. I may have my own perceptions. That doesn't mean that it's reality by and large. I can share things that other people have told me, like in casual conversation. What I've heard is if I make a mistake, it's because I'm old. If A 30-something CRNA has an adverse patient outcome, it's one thing. But if the same thing happened to a 60-year-old, their competence is questioned. They're looked at differently. And I did come across information in the literature that says older individuals are judged more harshly on errors. And someone said, a surgeon said he didn't want an older CRNA in his room. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah, that was one thing. Do you think that's because the the perception is that Older healthcare providers, CRNA specifically, are just supposed to have it figured out? Well, I don't know. I just think we are less forgiving of yeah. things with older individuals. I mean, everybody's got something along the way. If it's a new person adjusting to practice, anybody in a learning role, okay, we know we're scrutinized. It's my personal belief that I think there's a little more forgiveness there. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, there's less patience with people's imperfections. Yeah, that's interesting. We had a neurosurgeon who actually retired recently. And he was an exceptional surgeon. He was in- incredibly mm-hmm. kind. His mother actually was a CRNA. Uh, mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. was well into her 90s when she passed away, um, either uh, last year or the year before that. I can't remember. This particular neurosurgeon, towards the end of his career, began giving talks on the aging process and what it's like to be a subspecialty surgeon 
but also mm-hmm. himself kind of on that first and 10 goal line and looking at mm-hmm. you know, how to step out of his active practice, but also mm-hmm. how to adapt his practice towards those latter years in terms mm-hmm. of the demands that he would undertake. So, yeah, I don't have the data in front of me from what he shared, but it was interesting to look at, you know, like after the age of 65, some of the psychomotor mm-hmm. changes that happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he he saw that he didn't feel as comfortable handling like an open cranny for aneurysm resection, where the absolute precision of the steadiness of his hands was critical. So his group afforded him the opportunity to shift towards some other surgical procedures that the absolute precision was not um, as demanding. But it's interesting to think that there there is a natural aging process that goes on. Mm-hmm. Do you have any data in terms of what the average age is for CRNAs when they are retiring and transitioning across the the end zone, so to say? You know, I don't have that, unfortunately, now. I think it's an interesting concept, though, about, you know, when it's time to step out. You mentioned in another question about if I could snap my fingers (laughs) and institute a change. Um, It's like giving permission to people to say, it's okay if I need to step away from one thing or another, okay? Um, yeah, yeah. It, it just sounds scary to me that if you say that, uh, you're viewed as weaker or less competent. So you mean even you know, even in useful. so to give permission to folks in their career, it's okay if you want to say I'd rather not do those kinds of cases. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would like to see that, but uh, is there like a deep seated fear that this looks bad for me, kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. that I'm not not as valuable, not as useful. Right. You know, others are impatient with me, the eye rolling, whatever, you know, kind of thing. I want to touch on one other thing that we were just kind of um, chatting about is accommodations or or giving permission to older Mm -hmm. CRNAs in terms of adapting their practice. Have you seen that happen in the clinical site that you've worked in? I do. I do. What kinds Mm -hmm. of, what kinds of accommodations are allowed or granted or kind Uh, of built into the system? Oh, probably choices in cases. Um, this isn't necessarily age-related, but we're fortunate that we have a lot of flexibility with scheduling. So those are the two major things that I see. And what kind of practice are you in? We are a large community teaching hospital. How many CRNAs do you work with? Well, roughly 140. That's a, that's a very large group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you do have a healthy degree of flexibility in terms of scheduling? Yes, we do. And, uh, you know, something I've come across in that in the literature too, it's not just my opinion, the potential for resentment from others. And also there was one article that talked about individuals who receive privileges at work may also be seen as less competent. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah, we need to be aware of things like that. That, you know, there's there's a reason that people make these transitions and that these accommodations are I think they should be viewed as acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And hopefully save off the resentment that just brings some negativity into the workplace. Well, it probably goes back to the whole idea that we need to be talking more about this, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like globally mm-hmm. as a topic, not just on a podcast, but yeah. in your, in your individual groups, you know, the, the next business meeting you have or a grand rounds opportunity to talk about, you know, what does it mean to be an aging healthcare provider and what are the implicit explicit biases that we have? What are the accommodations that we make? What are the mm-hmm. permissions that we give and how do we support those mm-hmm. individuals? Because not only do we need older 
individuals to help just cover shifts and, mm-hmm. and get people through the OR. But there's so much that we wow. can continue to learn from folks that have a lot of experience. Right. Keep enough players on the field. <laughs> That's right. Going back to the football analogy. Uh-huh. What would you like to say directly to older CRNAs who may be listening? So any advice or tips uh-huh. or encouragement that you would give to them? You know, the first thing I'd like to lead off with is I think the open dialogue is just starting. And we have a lot to learn about this. We haven't formally assessed what's going on in our profession. Um, I'd love to hear more from other people uh, about what they have to say. And I think the number one thing is not to internalize a negative stereotype. Uh That because society expects us to have certain attitudes and behave a certain way, doesn't mean that we have to start acting that way. Okay, so don't internalize stereotypes would be my major message. That's we're awesome. still the same smart, capable people that we always were Yeah. when we stop and think about it rather than say, oh, no, you know, I can't do that. But yes, you can, you know, proceed with some confidence. Yeah, that's incredible advice. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan about empowerment and recognizing mm-hmm. that you still have the capacity to give back so much and to be sharp. I was teaching at a conference. uh, This was probably last year sometime out in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Mm -hmm. a CRNA, she was 62 years old. She planned to retire when she was 65. And Mm -hmm. it was quite fun to see. She befriended literally a new graduate CRNA during the conference. They sat right next to each other. And so the new grad was helping her access the podcast, actually, that how to navigate mm-hmm. that, how to get that on her phone and that kind of stuff. But uh, mm-hmm. the older CRNA came up to me. I can't remember her exact words, but the gist of it was that she said, you know, I'm, I'm 62. I'm going to retire in three years and I want to be as sharp on my last day of work as I mm-hmm. ever have been in my entire career, which I thought was really remarkable. She didn't want to internalize that stereotype is what I'm there getting you at. Go. She didn't want mm-hmm. to you know, just be perceived as an older CRNA who's less capable. Mm -hmm. She wanted to be as sharp on her last day as she ever was, which I thought was Mm -hmm. really inspiring. Yep. And I've known people like that. And, you know, they're an inspiration and an example for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cindy, you've got 24 years in as a CRNA Mm -hmm. and close to 40 as a nurse. How many more years Mm -hmm. do you think you have in your um, active career as a clinical CRNA? (laughs) I have no idea. I really don't. (laughs) You haven't, you haven't. Haven't picked a retirement age, date. Yeah, the magic age of sixty-five, um, and who knows? You know, you just don't know. I had one coworker sit up in bed one morning and say, "I'm done. I have nothing else to give." Really? And she was either sixty-two or sixty-three. Uh-huh. I have people who are working past sixty-five. Um, work is part of our identity, yeah. and I think that's especially true in this profession. Who are we if we're not CRNAs? Right. Right. Um. I find it, well, you know, the age for Social Security was raised for my age group. It's now 67. It's uh-huh. not 65. So who knows? You know, what does the money look like? What does your health look like? I think one of the scariest things is what are healthcare expenses going to look like? Right. And these are determinants. You know, it, it's it's hard. Hard to say. Right. Well, there's, yeah, there are, there are these external determinants. I can remember in 2008 with the economic downturn and the housing crisis that Mm-hmm. Many CRNAs who were thinking oh, about yeah. retiring mm-hmm. at that time decided to put it off. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they were thinking about selling their home as part of their retirement plan and the housing value was slashed. So they continued to work because they, mm-hmm. you know, some of the financial metrics that they were working off of for retirement were not there any longer. Well, and that's how I got my analogy with first and goal. You know, what if there's a fumble or a turnover? Oh, that's in- that's interesting. <laughs> right. I, I did not find myself 
you know, that close to the goal line to have something like that happen. Right. I think that was something that was so interesting, you know, that you just mentioned is that being a CRNA is such a big part of the identity of so many people who are in this profession. And that's something that this uh, surgeon who retired, this neurosurgeon, you know, he said, I'm a neurosurgeon, but beyond that, how he sees himself, he said, Mm -hmm. all of my friends are at the hospital. He's like, I don't, you know, his, Mm -hmm. his career was such that he never really developed a lot of connections with people who weren't in healthcare. Uh, Uh So he was nervous about that. You know, what do you, what does your life look like when you don't come to the hospital every day? And that's where Mm -hmm. your peers are. I think that's something else we need to look at more to share, share people's experiences and get it out there. What might you feel if you're feeling that way and you're not talking to anybody about it, you might not realize it's normal. Exactly. That's a good point. Well, before we go, uh, given your position as the chair of the AANA Health and Wellness Committee, I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you, how are we doing as a global CRNA community? I mean, topics mm-hmm. of you know burnout, suicide, divergence, mm-hmm. addiction, workplace stress, uh, uh-huh. finances and debt, all of those things that face CRNAs. Mm-hmm. What's your take on the community right now? Well, overall, if I go to annual congresses, I'm amazed at the interest in wellness. I think that's a major step forward that we're realizing, you know, what our challenges are to our own well-being. And thank goodness that people are catching on because I think that we can make our work lives better and stay healthier ourselves. Suicide, addiction, substance use disorder get a lot of attention, once again, because of the catastrophic outcomes, okay, and appropriately so. I think stress is probably the most pervasive problem among every single one of us. We're a stressed out society. There's no reason that we as CRNAs are any different. What do you think contributes to that stress? Well, the epidemic of busyness that we've, I'd say, imposed on us. Uh-huh. Okay, how, how much we have to do, how much of that is self-imposed, where is it coming from, why, you know, I'm not really sure. Um, but life is more complicated than it was probably 40, 50 years ago. Women are working outside the home more than they ever did before. You know, financial pressures. My parents' generation was content that they would retire, have Social Security and a pension, and they were fine. Yeah. Well, you know, pensions are going away. We hear things about Social Security not being there. I think we have higher expectation for how we're going to live when we retire. We're not probably not happy <laughs> with the, you know, the baseline simple things that generations before were. So you think stress is one of the leading things that we're facing as a society, but also as a profession? I would think so. And you feel like there has been a, a healthy turn to focus mm-hmm. on wellness and that that should continue for the Oh, A&A. I believe so. I believe so. And uh, I just think we've gotten away from the suck it up mentality. Okay, whatever it is, you know, in my career, what I've seen, I think two of the greatest examples are how we address and acknowledge the second victim phenomenon. Right. And our need for adequate sleep and rest. Interesting. Okay. As far as the devastating effects of adverse patient outcomes on clinician, how we've moved away from get back on the horse after you fall off. Yeah. Okay. That's no longer an acceptable way to deal with a bad outcome. I've had personal experiences with that. Not often, but it's happened. And uh, it was actually six weeks after I graduated from anesthesia school. Oh, wow. It was a very, very high risk patient who died on the table. And I didn't know why I was coming home. And just feeling so unsettled and, as I say, off my rocker for a few days. Yeah. Um, It passed. 
but I just kind of thought there was something wrong with me for feeling that way. Interesting. Uh, and this was almost 25 years ago. Right. Where now we publicly acknowledge that this is a thing. Okay. A personal am- impact of an adverse event or what they call a second victim. Right. And, uh, you know, it's okay to feel off. It's okay to support each other. Ignoring it and having people get back on the horse is not the correct response. And the other example is casting off the idea that you can sleep when you're dead. We've all heard that. <laughs> <laughs> That's nonsense when you think about it. Yeah. And uh, sleep's a biological need, like air, water, and food. You cannot yeah. do without it. So anyway, just making, you know, bringing a little more reality into our practice. Yeah, I think of course. Is a wise thing. So we're moving forward in a great way. Well, Cindy, I've enjoyed so much chatting with you today about this topic. Thank you so much for bringing attention to this and focusing on this. I'm really stoked that we were able to turn it into a podcast, and hopefully it will be something that's very helpful for all CRNAs out there. So where can people go to learn more? Tell us once more about what's going on with AANA Thrive and and where we can find other resources. Okay. Fairly easy to find. Just go to the ANA.com website under the Practice tab. Click on that and you'll find health and wellness slash peer assistance. Scroll down the page and you'll find a tab for ANA Thrive. And this is where we posted resources for career transitions. That's great. And I'll put a direct link to ANA Thrive through the website and folks should be able to just to, to click right through it and, uh, and yeah. check out all the resources mm-hmm. that are there. Well, Cindy, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, your time and energy on this topic. You are very welcome. It was my pleasure. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.